Welcome to the Berry Bunch Picks Flicks. If you have certain movies and TV shows that make you think of family, this podcast is for you. What started as a quarantine project to bring my family together over our shared love of movie trivia turned into a tradition. You could say the goal is to know each other as well as we know these media. And for you, come for the movie analysis, stay for the personalities, and welcome to the Berry family. This is the first episode we ever recorded back in May of 2020, in which we discussed the 1970 World War II film Patton about the inimitable commander of U.S. forces on the European front. Finally, this episode is dedicated to my grandfather, whom you'll hear on today's show. Let's get started. A quick heads up that this episode contains full spoilers for the film. Well, my name is Rebecca Berry, and we're here today to have the Berry family get together and review the movie Patton. We're going to introduce ourselves one by one. My name is Rebecca. And I'm Grandpa Jerry. The next step will be to my older son, Stephen. Hi, I'm Steve. I'm Dave. And I'm Danny, Rebecca's brother. We're here today to talk about the 1970 movie Patton, which my family loves, especially because it's World War II history. I guess the first thing I want to ask is, Bumpa, to you, what does it take to be a good general in a war? Someone who's had experience to back up what he intends to attain. It can't be just on fancy speech or anything of that nature. He's going to have a good background, and Patton had that. He had the experience, and when he stepped up front, he had it behind him. Good answer. Does anyone else want to weigh in on what it takes to be a good leader in a war? Sure, I'll weigh in. I think a good military leader requires supreme confidence, the kind of confidence that very, very few people have. I want you to think about the concept of sending people into battle, the idea that you would actually commit young men and women to death and that you would do so freely, not just for one day, not just for a week or a month, but for years even. And that's exactly what Patton did. He was in the military for something like 36 years from 1909 until the date of his death. He died with his boots on as a a military commander. And so uh, this notion of supreme confidence or even an arrogance, how could you possibly go to bed at night when by your action, you probably committed tens of thousands of, of people to death? Something they make a point of in the movie is saying that Patton's the sort of man who can't live with himself during peacetime. He just doesn't know what to do. But I want to take that a step further and ask, do you think Patton was a little bit crazy? I don't think I don't think crazy is the right word. He was eccentric in a way. I mean, he was truly like this Renaissance man, right? The movie made a big deal about him being well read, a man of history. And you know, later on in the movie, he's making speeches in French. Uh, experiences hugely important for a successful leader. Confidence hugely important. 
But the guy it seemed to have just pure hardcore IQ. He had horsepower and could think clearly both tactically and strategically. I think that's where true high-level leaders, generals, but he, he clearly had a serious military mind. His brain had computational power that could work on multiple levels. And he had like the liberal arts side of the house too. Both both sides of the brain were working, right? <laughs> so he just seemed like the complete package and was uh, in the perfect role for his brain, his body, his life. Yeah, but uh, just keep in mind though, that uh, he believed in reincarnation. At least the movie portrayed him to think that he used to be a, a warrior in past lives or even a commander. There was that very poignant scene where he's, he's there with an aide stopping at a, an ancient battleground. And he insisted, I was there. I was there. Very highly intelligent, highly skilled man. He, he even invented things. He invented a saber. You know, Patton was an old cavalryman. And uh, he even created a saber, which is called the Patton Saber. So, uh, yeah, brilliant man, but crazy like a fox. So let me let me push back on that. So that's where we saw the movie in that in in that aspect of him saying, "I was there." What was it? A thousand years beforehand, or something? Are we just take that literally? Was that is that well documented? And they simply inserted it, or did? Old Hollywood sort of spice up the old screenplay on that. That's where sometimes I, I'm accused of taking things too literally. <laughs> Steve, maybe you know. Is it like straight up true? Uh, I don't know. Okay. I mean, maybe it is. Because I think what you two raise is an important dichotomy. If dad is correct and he means it literally, I was standing there, I have memories of this place, then I think maybe his mental state could be called into question a little bit. But if he means it in a grander metaphorical sense, like a great warrior will always be there and find his battlefield, then, um, well, I think he might still have sort of a, a grandiose complex about himself, but not necessarily be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I guess a deceptively simple question would be, how does this movie make you feel towards Patton, towards World War II, maybe even towards the U.S.? What emotion do you think we're supposed to come away with at the end of the story? I would like to approach that from two different perspectives. I think if you were a, um, a person from a country that is not America, you would look at this and say, oh, my God, this guy's like a cowboy. He's got these ivory-handled revolvers, and he walks with a swagger. I could easily see like a French person say, I'm nauseated by your American movie. The arrogance, this cowboy, this is not a description of a real man. This is uh, fiction. But my takeaway of uh, the film is it immortalizes Patton. If this movie had not been made, I really don't think we would know as much about Patton as we do. Because it's, it's quite fascinating how a movie or a, a, any kind of production in the theater arts can popularize a figure. I'll give you an example. Alexander Hamilton. We grew up knowing that Alexander Hamilton was killed in a duel and, and, and that he started the Federal Reserve. That's it. That's it. 
And all of a sudden, we've got this rap play musical all about Alexander Hamilton. And people who don't even have a high school education know who Alexander Hamilton is. That's what happened with this movie. It immortalized and made him popular amongst generations of people who really wouldn't be considered to be military history people in the first place. I come away with the idea that Patton is one of the most competent, capable military commanders in U.S. history. Can I jump on top of that while I'm thinking of it? it when I, Coming away from this movie, Patton handicapped himself with his shenanigans, his, his, his mouth, right? He got in trouble with his mouth, so politically, leaders above him, Eisenhower and such, they were forced to, like, push him off to the side, which makes me nauseated because if he were, instead of freaking Montgomery, trying this market garden stunt, what would have Patton done with market garden? Would we have been done uh, with World War II by Christmas? If Patton didn't get in trouble with his mouth and they had to push him to the side, I would have loved for Eisenhower to say, still use them and and provide top cover for Patton despite his shenanigans and and because he recognized Patton as being the supreme leader clearly and uh, maybe Patton would have saved a huge number of lives and ended the war sooner. I think another interesting thing about this movie is it teaches you a little bit about the politics when you have uh, different countries collaborating with each other. You learn, remember, who who was the enemy in this case? Uh, The Germans. One country, Germans. Who were the good guys in this movie? The Allies. Several different nations, like the Americans, the British, and, and others. And what you learn in this movie is the Germans are incredulous that the Allies demoted Patton. How could you do that when he's your best military commander? But you learn that military structures are bureaucracies. And when you collaborate, you learn that you have to be equal parts diplomat as you are military commander. And that's what Eisenhower was. And that's why you see how Patton does not thrive in a collaboration. He's not a collaborator. He is not. You saw that he was at odds with Montgomery all the time. He was competing against him. I couldn't figure out who was the enemy, the Germans or Montgomery. Hmm. That's a patent quote you're saying. (laughs) In addition to that, I find it ironic that In some sense, Patton is obsessed with image and discipline. He goes around telling soldiers, put your helmet on, get those tights on, I need you up at 6 a.m. But he struggles to apply the same level of discipline to aspects of his own life. If he could just rein himself in on some of the comments he's making and the politics he's wading into, he would have those primo commands that he's hoping for. I can't decide if that's a contradiction or just a flaw of his character, but he has such high standards for other people, and he has to understand that other people are applying those standards to him, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, here's a trivia question for you, Rebecca. So how old was Patton? How old was Patton when he died? Let's let's ask Bumpa, Dad. Yeah. How old? I, I'm thinking. I, I don't know. More venture, I guess. 65? It's a good guess. Anybody else? 
Huh. I think younger. Uh, 57. 57. Anybody else? I'm going to say 61. The answer is 60 years old. Mm. I just want you to imagine that a military commander was still in harm's way at age 60. At age 60. That's crazy talk. It's older than I am. And all I can think about is retirement. You know, I mean, the guy wanted to continue fighting. What did he do? The real George Patton? At the end, after VE Day, victory in Europe, he wanted to move to the Pacific and fight Japanese. He wanted to keep fighting. He was a born warrior. That's all he wanted to do. And sure enough, he ended up dying in Allied-occupied Germany in December of 1945. But in a non-combat way. Yes. Supposedly. Oh. Supposedly. Because he said naughty things about the Russians, and uh, (laughs) Steve thinks maybe the Russians. Interesting. I like it. We like conspiracy theories. Patton was very tempted. Give me an army, and I'll I'll attack those guys, the Russians, the Ruskies. On that note, let's take a quick break. When we return, we'll hear from Danny and discuss the most controversial scene of the film, the slap heard around the world. So, Danny, we haven't heard from you yet. Do you want to share your general impressions based on what you saw of what kind of a man Patton was? I can talk a little bit, I guess, about this, um, kind of going back to two of the earlier questions. But from the small amount I saw, it was very clear, yes, he is obviously an amazing, if not the best, war commander. But I'm very much more in Steve's camp in the sense that he definitely was crazy. It was just that there was a method to his madness in the sense like so many of the greatest artists of the world, the Da Vinci's, the Van Gogh's, they all are very crazy, but they're able to use their craziness to their advantage in their craft. And in this way, it was Patton's method of controlling his craziness was into this in the sense that he had absolutely amazing calls, which turned out to all be correct essentially but if even a single one of those were wrong it could have been devastating for the u.s and so we kind of see a bigger message is kind of wars are messy wars are risky and so it was a big struggle of power for Patton of saying the u.s saying how much are we willing to risk on this battle like is it worth involving Patton, who is known to be very good but he's a big risk he makes very aggressive calls and he's a very aggressive person but is it worth trying to use his strategies? It's risk management and trying to contain the mess of the war. On that note of analysis, I wonder if we want to talk about what was each person's favorite moment from the movie or a moment that really sticks out to you as being representative of the film as a whole. Mm, Actually, I have a lot of favorite scenes from this movie. It's one of my top 10 war movies of all time, not just World War II. And some of my favorite scenes you'll find to be rather innocuous, only because I find them to be personally, um, I have personal feelings about it. One scene is when George Patton directs his troops to uh, pull out of one battle, travel 100 miles to go rescue the guys in the Battle of the Bulge that were surrounded around Bastogne. 
And so the director shows a, a series of scenes, guys traveling on the road or doing battle. And there's this one night scene where you see this U.S. military man attacking across a very level snowy field. And in the middle of the night and the cold, he is shot dead right there. And all you see is this lonely figure dropping to the ground, never to stir again. And I remember that one. His helmet goes bouncing. That was a very artful scene, and it struck me more than some of the other battle scenes. And that's my feeling, too. It was a very, very poignant scene showing a man dying alone. And it just strikes sadness in me, where here others are gaining fame and glory, and here is a foot soldier who is sacrificed to the god of war to die alone in a foreign country, thousands of miles away from his family. It happens very quickly, and there is no commentary. There is no any essay that comes with it. But it really stuck out, of all the things, to be a very poignant scene. It's very personal, I think. Very personal. Anybody else? Yeah, I, a couple of just fun scenes that I think are still good. The shooting of the uh, the donkeys. They go over the bridge. That scene and the scene where he's directing traffic. We speak of how uh, intelligent and skillful he is at a strategic level, at a tactical level. But the guy gets his boots dirty. He jumps in at the lowest level. He gets stuff done. Leads by example. I think people want to follow someone like that. You know, I would add to that, you need to pay attention to the credits at the end of the movie to learn something. Who was the subject matter expert to fact check, to provide consulting advice to the accuracy and the the realism of this movie? And that person was General Omar Bradley, the very dude that's in the movie. Not the actor, of course, but the real general. What I love about that is when the guy who actually talked to Patton, maybe on a daily, if not an hourly basis, is the guy that's fact-checking the scenes, I realize that there will be some license taken in order to create a movie. But I love seeing his name in the credits because it tells me this isn't fiction. This is something that is based on fact. It has Omar Bradley's blessing. And frankly, Omar Bradley probably endorsed the way that he was being presented in the movie too, which is very important. Because you can see that, you know, uh, Omar Bradley being the nice guy, sort of kowtowed to uh, Patton. And you know what? That's, that's how it happened. When you've got one egomaniac and, and the other guy known as the GI General. Another reason why I like this movie very much. Speaking to the historical accuracy, I was looking back at the script for the movie, and I really love this note. When they introduce Bradley, the script writer has written in here, Bradley will carry a Springfield in reference to his gun in Africa, a carbine in Sicily, and a forty-five in Europe. They have paid careful attention to each of the different settings in which his weapon would change. And I just love the level of detail that they went into to create the realism. Wow. I didn't pick up on that. 
<laughs> no, I didn't either. <laughs> you see the scene where uh, Bradley's uh, Jeep almost gets blown up. He needs to scramble for cover and he loses his helmet. And yeah. so uh, he picks up another helmet. Do you remember that scene? Oh, I didn't notice that he got someone else's helmet. It was not his own helmet. It was someone else's helmet. <gasps> and then they had a funny little scene where another GI comes behind him and says, you know, who's the crazy guy who ordered this? And it was Bradley himself. It, he no longer had the three stars on his helmet. He was wearing a GI helmet. And he said, oh. they ought to shoot him. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay. Bumpa, did you have a favorite scene from the movie? Uh, not particularly. I enjoyed all of it and all of the sentimentality and the uh, given by the individuals in it. I don't recall particularly a favorite scene. Do you prefer battle scenes or talking scenes? A battle scene is what I would seek in a picture of this type. So, Danny, I think you only had enough time to watch some clips for today. What was one or two clips that stood out the most for you? Probably the one in the medical tent, I believe, where he yells at the soldier who's scared of the battlefield, like, get on the front line, get on the front line, and slaps him. That was very memorable for me. All right, here's my take on the medical tent scene. That is the only scene I remember seeing as a teenager when I first saw bits and pieces of this film. And I thought, I don't want to work for that guy. He seems vindictive. He seems unhinged. And he seems like he cares more about his personal glory than the safety and well-being of his soldiers. Um, seeing the movie so many years in context, I appreciate the torment that he went through after that incident and the changes he may have made to his own life. Indeed, it sounds like the incident became so blown out of proportion that it came to define the rest of his military career, which I think was perhaps a very high price to pay. But I was surprised by what I felt were the modern sensibilities of the film in making Patton pay a high price for that kind of attitude, which I would have assumed was the predominant attitude of, if you have a nervous breakdown, it's because you're a coward, it's because you're lazy, it's because you don't want to fight or are trying to hide. I was surprised that more people were sympathetic to the soldier than they were to Patton's view on that. Mm. You know, it, what's interesting, Rebecca, is um, remember when this movie came out. This movie came out in 1970, which means it was when we were in the Vietnam War. And there were a lot of soldiers coming back from the Vietnam War really, really screwed up. Mental illness, PTSD, I think was really entering into the awareness of the American public at that time when this movie, Patton, about World War II was coming out. And so it's quite fascinating how modern mores or thinking can be really sort of like in revisionist history be placed on a different time when post-traumatic stress disorder might not really be considered to be a real thing. What I love about the medical tent scene is the director takes his time. He is very slowly allowing Patton to walk through the tent and to visit certain soldiers that were grievously injured. Another one of my favorite scenes is not the slapping scene. 
It's the scene where there's a privacy screen that is set up. And I think the privacy screen is one, it's like a signal where this grievous soldier could be at the edge of death. And it really is quite emotional for me. There's Patton. He's placing a purple heart on the pillow next to the head of this young boy who's got an oxygen mask masking his face. And you're led to believe that the wounds are just unimaginable and that they're probably mortal. So here's Patton, who's whispering into that man's ears. It really just triggers an emotional response. And that's what you're supposed to have. Here, Patton being just overcome emotionally by himself, by the, the heroism of this brave warrior, he steps up and then he comes across our victim, the guy who doesn't have a scratch, not a scratch. And so I thought the director did a fabulous job in setting it up. You've got a man without a scratch who is residing in the hospital tent. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? He can sit outside. What, you need a glass of water? Go get a glass of water. But you do not sit in this place of honor. I thought it was set up so beautifully, masterfully. I think that's one of the reasons why Patton received Best Picture in 1971 and Best Director. And by the way, the best screenplay. screenplay yeah. How do other people feel about that poignant scene of Patton whispering into that, that dying man's ear? Well, let me ask you one clarification question about that. You had said that given the fact that this movie came out in the Vietnam era, maybe that influenced it to be a little more aware of PTSD. But it sounds like from your description after that, that we're still supposed to be on Patton's side and say, get that guy out of here. So which do you think it is? Was the movie being sympathetic to people with PTSD or was it being a little harsh against them? Well, this is where I'm going to play both sides. It is being sympathetic to people who suffer from PTSD, but it's really more of an explanation as to why General Patton would have had the extreme behavior. It was justified from the emotions that were overwhelming him at the moment because he was amongst people, brave warriors, who were likely taking their last breath. Okay. Now, I want to check one thing. Danny, did you think Patton's actions in that scene were justified? I mean, especially given the time period, I definitely understand them. And as Steve mentioned like a while ago, I feel like in order to really be a very good war leader, you have to have that just unfounded confidence and just that resilience against everything. And so like people who become very unconfident and unsure and very scared can often find solace in someone who is so confident in the outcome. And so I understand his actions in the sense that it was almost trying to instill hope or like reinstill confidence in the soldier in that regard. I can understand both sides. Also, I looked it up and I can't 100% say if this is true or not, but I did find someone explaining that that scene in real life the soldier, first of all, actually very, very much looked up to Patton, but he was actually in the tent because he had undiagnosed malaria. Interesting. Which completely kind of changes. Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. Did not know that. Did yeah. Not know that. 
Well, Danny, I thought you were going to say a simple no, and then I also would have said no, and I would have been like, see, it's a generational thing, but nope, that didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's okay. You don't have to agree with what I was thinking. So let, let's maybe simplify the tense scene with one simple question to Bumpa. Do you think Patton should have slapped that soldier or not? Was he wrong in slapping the soldier? It was his instinct at the time as a leader of men in battlefield over the years, it happened. <laughs> I, I like that word instinct. Yeah, I think that's very true. Let's take another quick break, then come back and consider whether you would take Patton on a dinner date. So I have a question. You have an opportunity. After the end of the war, you had an opportunity to go to dinner with Patton or go to dinner with Bradley. Which do you choose? Eisenhower. Eisenhower. <laughs> Rommel. <laughs> oh, God. Pat, I'd be intimidated. I'd be intimidated by Patton. I, you know, he doesn't like you. He shreds you. Maybe he walks out before the dessert course or something. You know what I mean? Where Bradley would probably be gracious any which way the, the dinner went, but I'd be scared to death going to dinner with Patton. <laughs> so you choose Bradley? Yeah. What about Dad? Patton. You'd go to dinner with Patton, okay. I would. And Rebecca? I would also pick Patton, and I would make it my mission to get him to quote as many ancient thinkers as possible. <laughs> Andy Barry, how about you? Yeah, I'll I'll go with Patton. I would choose Omar Bradley. I really, in my career, I've met people who are super terrific as they stand on stage and address a group of four hundred people, but they're really pretty uncomfortable being one to one, and they have no time for small talk. They have no time for you. I see Omar Bradley being someone who would make the evening a memorable and valuable evening. And Patton, wait for him to give another speech, and I'll show up for that. Thank you. <laughs> that reminds me, I just want to give a special shout out to any scene where he's talking to the journalists. I love the way that the journalists only ask about the salacious things. And then every interview just slides out of control as it goes on longer. And he always tries to insist, that doesn't go on the record. And it always ends up being front page news. <laughs> Never gets old. <laughs> and we, we see it to this day. So I think you're, you're making a parallel with Donald Trump, aren't you? I think so. Wow. There you Actually, go. that leads to one of my last questions. Do you think Patton would have made a good U.S. president? Mm. No. I don't think so. I agree. He just doesn't have the political skill. Yeah. His skill set does not include politics. He is uh, He is not suited for peacetime. He is a warrior. Mm -hmm. Give him a shield and a spear and he's comfortable. I think if he had been president after FDR, his first thing in office would have been to name himself in charge of the Pacific campaign. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say the first warrior president, but we've had George Washington and Ulysses Grant. There we go. 
Speaking of playing the political game well, I really liked the scene with Montgomery approaching someone else in the bathroom to pitch his idea about how to invade Sicily. It demonstrated that Montgomery might have a lot of bravado and kind of an off-putting personality, but he knows how to play the game and how to schmooze with people, how to make the backdoor deals that um, get him to places that Patton couldn't get with his personality. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to say the thing that I find very upsetting and what the director wanted you to be upset by is the director spends the whole movie showing you that Patton was the better man. Patton was the better general. Patton shortened the war. Montgomery probably got more guys killed. You heard from Dave about Operation Market Garden. And how was Patton rewarded? He was fired. He was fired. At the time of his death, he was just a little functionary managing a, a part of the Allied occupation zone in Germany. And Montgomery was promoted to the commander in chief of all the forces. One guy was hired, the other guy was fired. That's a very important irony that the director wanted to portray. And apparently it resonated with a lot of people because it was voted as best picture. You know, one piece of the movie we haven't talked about at all is the scenes with the Germans, Steiger and Rommel. What do you think the scenes at the German camp added to the movie? Why were they important? Oh, uh, are you talking about when they're in the command bunker and they're discussing this commander? We saw their inside perspective. They were like, they were afraid of Patton. They respected Patton. And they were super confused why uh, the Americans would not use him in certain battles and certain commands. And Hitler fell for the bait when Patton was in the south of England, setting up the decoy army up there across from what the Pas de Calais, right? They were immensely respectful of him. And, and uh, those scenes gave us that insight. I really like that observation, that it was almost like his enemy respected him the appropriate amount when his own fellow countrymen struggled to do so. I also felt that the scenes with the Germans made it feel more like a chess match going back and forth. Each person made their move, and Steiger in particular always seemed to know what Patton was going to do next based on his romantic sensibilities. And it was fascinating that even though he could predict what Patton wanted to do, it didn't necessarily mean that the Allies were going to let him do it. I just loved that it adds some tension of whether they were going to figure out the next move and beat him to the punch. Yeah, I agree. I, I do like that, uh, Steiger. It's a, a classic example of profiling, that uh, if you want to try to defeat your enemy, you need to get into his head. Would you call this a pro-war movie? Yes. It glorifies war. Well, it glorifies war to a certain extent. But remember that scene of the American boy running across the frozen landscape, dying in the middle of the night away from family and friends? That's not pro-war. That is not pro-war. That was supposed to leave an indelible image on you. I guess that makes me wonder, since it did come out in 1970, what the public's reaction to it was. If there are people who are saying, oh, we don't need another war movie at a time like this, or if there are others who were really excited about it. You know, if you take a look at Vietnam, 
Vietnam had degraded into this logistical exercise. The Americans had lost their way and they were evaluating victories by the number killed in action. Every day, the statistics would come out, the number KIA of the enemy. Part of the problem of Vietnam was there wasn't a strategy or objectives to accomplish. What really makes the movie Patton completely different from the Vietnam War, this was a guy who was driven by goal setting. He was prepared to sacrifice everything, everything in order to be at Messina before Montgomery. He was willing to sacrifice everything to get Bastogne and be the superhero. Well, and that's where his legacy is complicated to me because he was willing to sacrifice some things that maybe shouldn't have been his to sacrifice, namely other people's lives. And I don't know, that's, that's what makes him complicated. I agree after watching the movie that he's a very admirable figure, but this is one reason I find it difficult to admire generals and war heroes in an uncomplicated way. I felt like Bradley was more of our figure who did everything to alleviate the suffering of his soldiers, even if that meant it would have dragged out the war longer in the end. Well, all right, Rebecca, I liken it to a football game. Here's a football coach, uh, the head of Alabama. He is known as being one of the winningest coaches in the history of college football. Oh, by the way, there are probably a thousand college football players that got injured or maimed while being a football player on his football teams. Has anybody ever criticized him for uh, getting uh, kids hurt? Absolutely not. We will always remember him as being one of the winningest football coaches of all time. He is in the history books of this country for what he's accomplished. But he didn't purposefully introduce new risks to make students potentially more injured. There was never a time where he like made the kids do something extra like or put them at a higher chance of risk of injury during a game. When you always expect more from your troops, you always force them to stretch. Think of a football coach who uh, would be willing to have a player pass out on the field. That used to happen all the time. Heat prostration. Nobody gets water until we're done. And every now and then, you know, a kid would die. So are you folks familiar with the fact that while George C. Scott was awarded the Best Actor Oscar, he turned it down? I was not aware of that. Wow. Yeah. The concept there, which I find quite fascinating, is George C. Scott, who I want to go on record to say, George C. Scott is more Patton than Patton. I really believe that man was born to play that role. When you see him give that speech at the beginning and and frankly act throughout the entire movie, my God, I felt like I was watching Patton, the general, on the screen. He did that just so well. And so when he was awarded Best Actor, he made a statement. He said, look, I am not in a competition with other actors. That whole notion was ludicrous to George C. Scott. And I really respect that. You know, the, the Academy Awards is a stroke fest for all of these uh, these actors and actresses. Oh, by the way, there's a billion people that watch the show. But George C. C. Scott would not uh, subscribe to that. And I think that's really, really cool. The director went up 
and accepted on behalf of George C. Scott to not upset anybody, but to fulfill George C. Scott's instructions, the director returned the Oscar the very next day. Wow. I got a quiz question for you, Rebecca. Okay. You were talking about how, or was it Dave, the Germans were fooled when uh, Patton was managing a fake army, a fake invasion army in the UK. There's a scene, it's very quick, it's very quick, where they bring him to England for the first time. But when they bring him to England for the first time, they really wanted him to be in hiding. Can you tell me where they hid George Patton? They show him in a particular room. What was that building? No, I don't know. It was a very effeminate room, right? Lots of lace and pink and... Eisenhower put George Patton in a whorehouse. No. That was a whorehouse. And the only thing the director tipped you off on is there was a mirror on the ceiling. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> wow. I didn't pick up on that one. <laughs> well, that's all for the inaugural episode of the Berry Bunch Picks Flicks. If you're hungry for even more patent content, check out our bonus episode in which Dad, Danny, and I carry on the conversation. Tune in next week for discussion of a seminal comedy about a workplace that puts the fun in dysfunction, The Office. If you have stories to share about your own family's relationship to these movies and shows, please write us or leave us a voice memo. You can email us directly at berrybunchpicksflicks at gmail.com. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and drop us a message in the comments. And please, share the show with your family and friends. Berry Bunch Picks Flicks is produced by me, Rebecca Berry. Music on today's show includes The Brave and the Bold by Matan Govari and Rise by Clemens Rue. Many thanks to today's guests, which included Steve Barry, Dave Barry, Danny Barry, and her wonderful grandfather, Gerald Barry, who passed away earlier this year. This one's for you, Bumpa. <laughs> <laughs>